So we're going to try to cover today the uh, temple. Um, when you're trying to build a building to magnify the name of the Lord, Solomon realized, I can't do this. This is, God is bigger than this building, and this isn't really going to house him. This is merely where we're going to come and worship before him. But because of who we're worshiping, we're going to try to make it as magnificent as we possibly can. And with the magnificence comes uh, a pressure to uh, to have it, <clears throat> everything in, in line. But you also have, um, back in Exodus, some guidelines for building the tabernacle. So what you'll see in the tabernacle is some very precise uh, measurements, exactly how God wanted it. In fact, it was so precise and how God wanted it when it was constructed, the Spirit of God empowered the builder. So when the Spirit of God empowers the builder so that it wasn't left up to human imagination, it was a, what came out of that construction of the tabernacle was exactly how God wanted it. What we don't see in Solomon's construction, and then later will be Herod's construction, is God empowering, God definitely didn't empower Herod <laughs> uh, to build. He doesn't empower the builders. He doesn't empower Solomon. We don't see the Holy Spirit of God here. So there is some left to human creativity. Um, and because of the amount of text today, we're not going to be able to look at, at everything in 1 Kings 6 and 7. And I don't think it's um, going to be valuable for us to slow way down and, and get every verse. Uh, I'll let you read it. I meant to show you a picture um, but that I found. I think the ESV Study Bible may have the best picture of the inside of Solomon's temple. And so I may be able to show you that. Uh, my printer didn't work um, when I just tried printing it to show you. And sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. So just seeing what it would look like would would fill in the imagination of, of what the text uh, says of the dimensions and and terminology that we may not use today as far as pillars and storage rooms and, and things like that. So it would give you a size dimension in the picture of how um, small a person was. But if you <clears throat> you see mega churches today, mega churches are built to house so many thousands of people. The temple, although thousands are going to come worship here, it's not meant for thousands to worship inside like our churches are. And same with uh, Herod's temple in Jesus' day. It's not meant for all these thousands to gather inside the temple. Now, they could gather inside the temple complex, but not inside the building itself. So that's different with our churches and the Old Testament temple. It was designed for only the priests to go in, and then the Holy of Holies, only the high priest once a year. Okay, so it wasn't meant to house a lot of worshipers as our churches are today. It was meant to, uh, to be just a place where uh, man could get close to God, uh, close to the magnificent God, the only true and living God. So 1 Kings uh, chapter 6 starts with the timing. 
There's no other verse in Scripture like 1 Kings 6.1, and very helpful for us to have a time reference here. Um, there is a lot out there. Most conservative scholars believe in an, it's an early and a later date for the Exodus. This verse eliminates the possibility of a later date of the Exodus in the 1200s BC. So the date of the Exodus is tied to the building of the temple, and this is the only verse that does this for us. But because of this, we cannot have a late date for the Exodus in the 1200s. It has to be in the 1400s BC, okay? And because of this verse. Now, you can imagine not conservative commentaries will look at this verse and say, well, 480, it doesn't mean 480 years, <laughs> okay? Be aware of anyone you read that says what clearly is in scripture it doesn't mean that what you think it means okay god doesn't write to trick us uh, and so whenever you see 480 years we're going to take it 480 years okay in the 480th year after the people of israel came out of the land of egypt in the fourth year of solomon's reign over israel in the month of ziv it which is the second month he began to build the house of the lord this is as precise as god wants it to be down to the very month that solomon starts to build and we know it takes him seven years. And we know it's in the fourth year of his reign. So if we were to go back 480 years, we have another time reference in the book of Judges that's helpful. So the first couple judges uh, serve one after another. But the, uh, the second half of the book of Judges, when you see so-and-so served so many years, and then he died, and they cried out, and a lot of those judges are serving in different locations in Israel, and they can't be concurrent, or the book of Judges would be way longer than the 300 years that it has to fit in Israel's history. So Judges 11.26, in the time of Jephthah, we have a time reference to 300 years after the Promised Land. They go into the Promised Land to the time of Jephthah, which is Judges 11.26. And that's around 1105 BC. So Jephthah lives the same time as Samson, the same time as uh, a few other judges that you know, including Eli. And then if we look at uh, Samuel's life, Samuel may have been a young boy as Jephthah and Samson are serving. Uh, Samuel knows uh, these guys. And then Samuel lives. We know that Samuel dies before David becomes king. But both the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, all serve 40 years. That help, that's helpful for us. So they serve, and they don't serve overlapping. They serve uh, one after another. So that's 120 years. And so if we're in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, 84 years there has been a king in Israel, 40 years of, of Saul, 40 years of David, four years of Solomon. <clears throat> we can say that, and the closer we get to the time of Christ and the closer we get to our time, the more precise we can get and the more references we have outside of the Bible of, let's say, Herod the Great lives. And when Herod the Great dies at the time of uh, Jesus' birth, we know uh, from extra sources, uh, we can narrow the birth of Christ down to a couple years. Um, that precise. And when we get to this 480 years, we can go back and say, the Exodus has to be 1444, 1445 BC. It cannot be that later date. Um, 
And so when scripture uh, wants to be precise, it can be as precise as the year and even the month. So this time reference gives solid evidence for the early Exodus date, and it fits the timeline of Judges, Samuel, David, and Saul. The time to build the temple gives addition, uh, attention to the detail to magnify God's name. Now, they have thousands of workers cutting stone, cutting trees, uh, carving, shipping, and then at the actual site, there is no noise of cutting stone, but fitting it together and precision. And uh, let's look at, uh, we're in chapter 6, verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, which matches what we saw in the first one. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. So seven years and six months um, in building it. Anytime something takes seven years to build with that amount of workers working on it, it was likely, it took like long, not just to erect the structure, the detail that you'll see, and you and I can read about in First Kings 6 and 7, is what took the time. The carving, the overlaying things with gold um, took, uh, took a, a massive amount of time. <clears throat> with all the laborers transporting materials, the nations around would have had to have known that they were building a magnificent building. So they are cutting uh, trees and stones in the north. They're taking them down the Mediterranean. They're bringing them across land. And as the nations are like, what is going on with Lebanon and Israel? Then the, just like the crossing of the Red Sea, that spread. And we know Rahab, the harlot living in Jericho, heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. In this known world, everyone's knowing something's happening in Jerusalem. God's name is being magnified because this building is going to be magnificent and it took seven years so the it's spreading so this place not just the timing let's go to hold your hand here and go to second chronicles 3 and the place also magnifies the name of god so the timing magnifies god and his sovereignty and his care for detail in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we notice a reference to the place, and this place is going to magnify God's sovereignty as well. So the timing, the place, and then obviously the temple is going to magnify God's sovereignty, but this is not accidental, the place where they chose. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't like, oh, we got a good deal on this piece of land. So this is where we're going to build the temple. No, this temple is built in this location because it matches two other times that um, this is mentioned, this place is mentioned. So verse 1, 2 Chronicles 3, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And now Chronicles, written uh, after the captivity, even looking back at Israel's history is going to tie Mount Moriah. And he's going to tell us why Mount Moriah is important where the Lord had appeared to David, his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So this was a place where God's judgment stopped. Remember the death angel is uh, killing people because David numbered the, 
Israelites and he wasn't supposed to. And where this um, plague stopped, 70,000 died, where that plague stopped is on the threshing floor. And that very location, David purchased it for Israel and likely for the kings. He purchased it, and this is the spot where um, you can read about in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. This was the place known uh, for a merciful God stopping judgment on Israel as David interceded. But Mount Moriah goes back even further than this. What else comes to your mind in Mount Moriah? What else happened at Mount Moriah in the book of Genesis? Oh, Abraham and Isaac. And sacrificing Isaac on uh, the location, and obviously wasn't built up like this time uh, was. But Mount Moriah is also the place, not just of a merciful God stopping judgment, but a place of a providing God stopping the killing of a beloved son and providing a substitute. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 2 and 14 both tell us it was it was in the land of Moriah on a mountain and where uh, Genesis 22 occurs. So the temple will be a place. So what are we going to conclude from this? The timing helps us to trust God and his, uh, his magnificence, but more, more so that this place, magnifying God's sovereignty, the temple will be a place where a guilty sinner can come close to their merciful God who provides everything they need. So who needs mercy? Guilty people need mercy. God is holy and allows sinners to come close to him. And the temple is going to be the place where this is going to happen. And this idea has already been... We've seen threads of it in, in the Old Testament. And then providing. Who needs someone to provide for them? Someone who's needy, okay? Um, Isaac, when he's laying on the altar getting ready to be killed, he needs someone to provide a substitute for him. And God provided that substitute. And so a place where a merciful God, and he is holy, and he is a providing God, he's gracious, these two ideas come together in this place of Mount Moriah. And the temple is going to magnify God's mercy and God's provision. So 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 18 to 36, we're not going to have time to read all of it. Uh, Kings is going to give us more details, 6 and 7. And you look at the length of these, there are 38 verses in 1 Kings 6. In 1 Kings 37, or chapter 7, there are uh, 51 verses. If you compare that with 2 Chronicles 3 and 4, which matches um, 6 and 7 of 1 Kings, uh, there are only 17 verses and uh, 22 verses. So uh, quite, a, quite a bit more detail in, in 1 Kings, and because of that, we'll just stay there. Uh, I'll make one note uh, from 2 Chronicles 4 that there is a discrepancy on numbers and i'll tell you which one is likely the the accurate number as we go through this so materials then of the temple are going to magnify god's sovereignty david collected all these materials stored them he couldn't even count the amount of bronze but he counted the amount of silver and the gold and it was for the purpose of 
building this house. And so Solomon has a, a massive amount of resources um, and he's, he's going to build this to magnify God's sovereignty. So the materials used were created by God. Does God create gold and silver? Well, yes, he does. How did those get into the ground in the first place? Jesus spoke and they were created. Okay. All humans have done is found the gold and the silver, traded with them, conquered people. David's conquered and taken uh, gold and silver as spoils. But God gets the glory for all the gold and the silver that they're going to use in constructing the temple. And we'll see a lot of gold. Um, <clears throat> how about the cedar, the cedar trees that are in Lebanon that are cut? Let's look at 1 Kings 6 18. <clears throat> Back in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 18, um, and we could read this, and there are very, very detailed, um, the boards of cedar, verse 15 says, Solomon lines the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. So no stone was seen on the inside of the temple, because everything inside was lined with cedar in verse 15, and then verse 18 the cedar within the house was carved in the forms of gourds and open flowers, all was cedar, no stone was seen. And the carving, I think, is what took a lot of time as uh, artists uh, spent time carving uh, the wood. And if you've ever been into a really wealthy mansion where someone, the detail of the artwork, the detail of the carvings and the and the moldings and everything, you're like, that took forever. That is not something you go to Home Depot and you find this kind of trim and you just take it and put it in your house. That is not because everyone really, really wealthy wanted to have custom. Everything's custom. This temple is custom, mm -hmm. uh, but not to magnify any person, to magnify the person, the person of the sovereign God. So uh, we're in First Kings uh, 6. So the materials used were created by God, so man will praise his beauty. Uh, everything is covered with cedar in 6.15 and 6.18. Then the materials used were created by God, so that man will praise his worth. The gold that is used to cover just the holy of holies. Okay, Second Chronicles, you don't have to turn back there if you're not there, but Second Chronicles 3, 8, and 9 say this. And he made the most holy place, and its length corresponding to its breadth of the house was 20 cubits. So roughly, if a cubit's a foot and a half, uh, roughly 30 feet uh, square, like a cube, and its breadth was 20 cubits, he overlaid it, that's the room, with 600 talents of fine gold. Every talent is 75 pounds. That <clears throat> roughly two, $2,000 per ounce, that is $1.4 billion, 45,000 pounds of gold he puts inside the Holy of Holies. $1.4 billion of gold in that one room alone, because that's where God's presence is going to be. Fine gold, not the cheap stuff, the, the best gold he could get because they're trying to magnify the name of the Lord and his worth. So the materials used were God created that gold so that man would praise his worth. And if you were to enter 
which you aren't allowed, but if you could enter the Holy of Holies or enter the holy place and see all this gold around you in that one room, everything is covered with gold. You're saying there's an unbelievable amount of wealth on the walls and the floor, all created by God um, to magnify and by his people magnifying his worth, praising his worth. The utensils inside are all made with gold. The furniture inside the holy place made with gold. The doors are made with gold. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 7 and look at verses uh, 48 to 50. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden, and that was for incense, the golden table for the bread of the presence, that's for the priests to eat, uh, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north and before the sanctuary, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs, everything inside the holy place is made of gold. Verse 50, the cups, the snuffers, the basins, the dishes, all the utensils used to start fire, to make things, to store uh, things in, uh, dishes for incense and the fire pans all of pure gold and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place for the doors of the nave of the temple, the entrance uh, to the temple um, covered in gold. Um, so what do we have here? We have materials um, that were created by God who allowed his worshipers to carve and create. You'll notice verse 18, verse 29, back in chapter 6, verses 32 to 35. God not only creates um, the cedar, the cypress, the gold, he also creates man and allows man to carve and create to magnify his name. So if you looked at 618 and 29 and verses 32 to 35 of chapter 6, uh, we would see that God allows man created in his image to carve and create things that would magnify his name. I'm going to mention, we're not going to have time to look at those, but we're going to look at the two pillars. The two exterior pillars that people could see uh, are have names. Um, and these names, Yaquin and Boaz, you've heard of Boaz before, and nothing to do with the guy uh, in the book of Ruth. Um but both 1 Kings 7 and 2 Chronicles 3 both mention these two pillars. If you're in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 21, um, there are um, two pillars set up at the vestibule of the temple, at the entrance of the temple. A pillar on the uh, south called Yaquin, and he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. So if we look up these names in Hebrew, what do they mean? They're going to magnify God's name. What are they magnifying about God? Yaquin means he will establish. And Boaz means in him is strength. So as worshipers are coming, they're getting close to God. They can only see these pillars. Only the priests are allowed to go in. Only the high priests of the Holy, uh, Holy of Holies. But this, the entrance of the temple is supposed to, and with these names are mentioned, attaching the worshiper to a God who will establish them. And 
as we worship God, in God is our strength. That those thoughts for us are, are helpful today. God establishes us. God roots and grounds us in the truth and in our Savior is strength. And we sing a song like, he will hold me fast because he is strong. So the Old Testament, visually um, <clears throat> seeing God's magnificence, seeing his beauty, seeing his creativity, allowing uh, humans to uh, create all to magnify his his sovereignty, his majesty, his glory. The exterior entrance has these two pillars and then the exterior utensils. There's an altar that's outside that is so much bigger than the altar, the bronze altar. <clears throat> if you remember the tabernacle, everything's got to be transportable. And because it had to be transported time and time and time again, it, it couldn't be that big. And because it wasn't that big, they couldn't offer and a massive amount of animals on the altar at once because it was only the size of, I think it was seven feet by seven feet, something like that. So that was as big as the altar they could get. But if you look at the dimensions of this altar, that's outside of the temple where the people are bringing altar uh, sacrifices. It's much, much bigger. It's much taller and it's uh, likely the size of this room. Okay. The, the altar is. And so they could put multiple, uh, sheep and oxen on on the altar at once so let's look at first uh, kings chapter 7 this matches second chronicles 4 but first kings chapter 7 <clears throat> um, exterior what people could see as you walked in to the temple uh, from the outside um, let's look at verse 22 I'm sorry, 23. He made uh, the sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits. So a cubit's a foot and a half. So 15 feet around. Um, that's a cross. So 15 feet diameter. Uh, it's like a swimming pool, right? From brim to brim and five cubits high. So it's a swimming pool that is uh, roughly the shape of a swimming pool, 15 feet across and then seven and a half feet deep. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, and it's set on top of 12 oxen, three facing north and south and east and west. And here's the discrepancy with Second Chronicles, verse 26. It says it holds 2,000 baths, and you have a footnote that says a bath is roughly uh, six gallons. And so if you do the math here, <clears throat> do the math in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, uh, says it's it holds 3,000 baths, and this says it holds 2,000. If you do the math, it, it can't hold 3,000. Uh, it has to hold only 2,000. And so um, what they think happened because of the three oxen facing east, three oxen facing north, the threes that are mentioned in the verse before, a scribal error, we think that uh, they took um, the number three from the previous verse, and they saw it quickly as they were copying and, and copied down 3,000 instead of 2,000. So likely First Kings uh, has the correct amount. Either way, I mean, 2,000 baths times six, 12,000 gallons of water. And this is for the priests to cleanse themselves. Um, they're going to have other things that are portable, holders of water, 
um, that are able to be reeled around and cleaning um, sacrifices. I ate these 10 stands. Uh, I'm going to skip the stands. You can read about those with wheels, little carts uh, that held water. Um, I'm going to try to get to where the I'm not going to be able to find it because I didn't write down the exact reference, but you can read how big the um, the altar is. Um, the altar had many steps to go up to it. The picture that I would show you, show you in comparison how a, a little man standing next to this massive altar. And when, when you see they are sacrificing thousands and sometimes without number in chapter eight, this would only be possible if you had a, a very big altar and could sacrifice multiple uh, animals at once to get through that many in even a day, uh, be a lot uh, a feat. And then finally, the last verse of chapter 7 of 1 Kings and the first verse of Second Chronicles 5.1 says, Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. Solomon brought in things that David his father had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So you'll see throughout the rest of Kings, whenever Israel gets attacked and they want to pay some ransom so that they don't get wiped out, they go into the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So the temple not only served as a place of worship, it also served as kind of like what we would say as a bank. So outside of the temple, and you'll see this in the picture, they built three levels of storage on the outside of the holy place and the holy of holies. And those were three, three stories worth of storage rooms. And when Israel was prospering, those rooms were full of resources, gold, silver, even food for the, the priests who would come in their month and serve like Zechariah does when he finds out he's going to be the father of John the Baptist. And when Israel's not doing this, those storage houses are empty They've got somebody with Sam Ballot living in one of them, and they kick him out. Um, Nehemiah, I think, kicks him out. Um, so they wanted to have a temple, and they wanted to have the resources around there uh, that would provide for the worship. And if you have enough resources, like David provides, he's not providing just like for one generation. He's providing enough resources, the gold and the silver, that if they would store it and use those rooms well, they could provide for generations of worship, which is what David set up Solomon and the next generations to continually worship the Lord. And if they were faithful to God, God was going to keep providing them and they can keep replenishing those resources. As they stop being faithful to God, the kingdom's divided. They're starting to be attacked. They're giving away the stuff in the treasuries of, of the temple. And then they're having trouble worshiping, okay? So God's desire in this, what we can see, is to dwell with his people in a permanent way. Realized for a time, Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, says, I, God says at Mount Sinai, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to myself. I'd be with you. I'd be your God. You'd worship me. This permanent structure would draw... Um, some from other nations, as the word is spreading, that in Israel they're building a magnificent building uh, to the true and living God. Go to Jerusalem and worship, and you'll see the Queen of Sheba uh, in the New Testament. Uh, someone like the Ethiopian eunuch is coming from a thousand miles away to worship the true God. 
in Jerusalem. Um, the whole earth is created by God. The whole earth, uh, God's desire is to redeem the whole earth. At the beginning of this building process, God sent his word to Solomon with a conditional promise. Uh, you can see that back in, uh, was it chapter, I think it was chapter uh, three. He says, uh, I will be, I'll be with my people. I will not forsake them. And Israel will have a king from David's line if you, Solomon, the political and the religious leader, will consistently obey or walk in my word. And he says, walk in my word twice. We don't have the same position as Solomon. We don't have the same splendor and majesty in our church buildings that this uh, even comes close to. But we do have the same goal of worshiping and magnifying God's name. And how do we do that? By obeying his word. The same thing that God asks of Solomon, he asks that of us too.